Welcome to the Wildverse podcast, sponsored by Pro One, where we introduce you to the wild world of taxidermy, a place where artists and hunters collide. I'm Ashley. And I'm Heather. And today we have a special guest who isn't just a fantastic big cat taxidermist, but also a skilled houndsman in the beautiful state of Colorado. Yeah, we thought that he would be the perfect mixture of both worlds to really give us some great perspective on the things going on in the state of Colorado right now, since he has some skin in the game on both ends of the spectrum. Yes. So we would like to welcome our guest, Leland Reinier from Big Cat Taxidermy in Craig, Colorado. How are you doing, Leland? Good. How are you? Good. I don't know if I said your last name right. No, you did. <laughs> no, I practiced. Good job. Oh, good. Okay. Oh, good. I thought she didn't, so that's good. <laughs> no, you're good. I thought I didn't either. Well, cool. Thanks for joining us today. You bet. Thanks for having me. I think a great start would be to tell everybody how you got your start in taxidermy. How did you learn? You know, where did that all begin? Right. So I started early, uh, really early. So my dad went to taxidermy school in 1988 and 89 at Colorado Institute of Taxidermy Training in Denver. He went to night classes. He was a construction worker by trade, and then he went to taxidermy school at night. And so I got to join him a lot at taxidermy school in the evening, you know, at the ripe young age of 11 and 12 years old. Wow. And so I started that way. And uh, then my parents divorced, and in 1990, my dad moved to Steamboat, and me and my brother went with him to Steamboat Springs, um, and he started a company called B&L Quality Taxidermy for Bob and Leland. You know, even at the young age of, you know, 12, 13 years old, I was included in that business. So I was always around his studio, skinning stuff, playing with stuff, uh, stitching stuff, you know, just kind of being a grunt. And then... One thing leads to another, right? You know, father-son disagreements. I moved away from his place my sophomore year in high school and uh, went to Grand Junction, graduated high school, went to Mesa State University for a while. And then I was just kind of lost. I had a chance to go to art school. I had a chance to go to Colorado Institute of Art. And I went and looked at the program and all they wanted to do is push me into graphic arts. And I, that wasn't my deal. Wildlife art was my love. Um, that's all I did in high school. Um, you know, like my senior year, the last semester I had in, in high school, I had two drawing and painting classes and I had weights and my teacher just let me draw show pieces. And that's all I drew was wildlife art. So I thought, man, I'm going to go back to taxidermy. And so I actually went to the same place where dad went to. I went to Colorado Institute of Taxidermy Training in Denver. I went night classes the same way, sat in the exact same bench that he went to um, and was the last graduating student of that school. When I graduated, they closed that school. Wow. Um, I had a small little business in Denver, still worked a full-time job, just kind of did some stuff in, in the garage. And then in 2000, my dad was hurt bad in a, in a vehicle rollover. It was August. It was archery antelope season. Both him and my brother were flight for life to Denver, oh, wow. and I was living in Denver still. And so I raced to the hospital, rode a lot of street bikes back then, a lot of crotch rockets, and I raced to the hospital on my bike and got there, and um, they were in bad, bad shape. Um, Dad's knee was completely destroyed. His ankle was shattered in pieces, and here it was going into archery deer and elk season, and he didn't have any help. He was all by himself. He was on crutches. He was cast up. And so I quit everything I was doing and I moved to Steamboat. Moved in actually to his house. 
Uh, he paid me just enough to make my truck and cell phone payments and my little bills that I had. I went from, you know, living really good and being a young single guy to, to living at my dad's place and, and being his slave in the shop, should we really say. Um, but I got him through that fall and, um, you know, that business never took a hiccup. Wow. Um, because of that, he asked me if I'd stay and help him. And so I stayed through that next winter and helped him build those pieces. And then I actually uh, went and got a different job that summer. And then he brought me back in the fall. I stayed there till 2004. The last year I worked for him was not real good. Um, you take two artistic people and you put them in a thousand square feet and you put those egos in there and it gets really bad. And uh, Yeah, and you add the fact you're father and son. <laughs> yeah, exactly, Heather. Right, so uh, that year too, like, um, I started taking in lions on the side, um, unbeknownst to my father, um, you know, because of my love of cats and because of my love of hounds and being around hounds and being around hounds men and all my friends were hound guys. I started taking in cats and that winter I took in 12 cats on the side. And I remember dad only took in four in the studio and I said, Hmm, there's a need for this. And so I took that money of those 12 lions I took the profit off that and then Jenny and I were married in June of 2004 and we took part of our wedding money and uh, we started our shop we started Big Cat Taxidermy so that was kind of the prelude into into starting Big Cat Taxidermy but um, grew up in the industry grew up in the taxidermy industry uh, grew up in the hunting industry you know my uncle was a guiding outfitter in the flat tops wilderness and I, I got to spend my early years with him um, so I've always always been around hunting always been around taxidermy obviously so that was the start of it yeah so it's been like your whole life has been around taxidermy around hunting so it almost was like exactly it just was a natural thing for you to pursue it was a natural flow um it really was a natural flow but you know it was the love of wildlife art um you know being a kid a little kid you know that's all i did is i did i did pencil drawings and charcoal drawings and it was you know, elk and cats and horses and, you know, stuff like that. Like, that's all I did. And so, you know, taxidermy was really, really natural for me. Um, you know, and I think, too, like to where I'm at right now in life-size work, you know, me drawing life-size stuff all the time my whole life, it just is fed into this, you know. Yeah, and um, so, of course, the name of your business is Big Cat Taxidermy. So would it be right to assume that mountain lions make up most of your work that you do? Mountain lions make up 95% of my work. That's, that's what we do day in and day out. You know, there's always like a revolving door of about 200 cougars in the walk-in freezer. It's, it's crazy, crazy that that's the way it is. Um, that was always my dream. Um, that's all I really ever wanted to do. You know, it was funny straight out of taxidermy school. I, I branded Big Cat Taxidermy because I, I that's what I wanted to do straight out of taxidermy school. I wanted to be a cat taxidermist. I wanted to mount nothing by, but cougars, and I, I just absolutely loved it. Um, so, yeah, 95% of my work is, is cat work um, and cougars primarily. You know, there's, there's leopards in there. There's a handful of small cats left that I still have to do. I haven't taken small cats in in two years. Um Sheep are a big thing. I love sheep. It's just kind of a break of break of the cats. Um, 
but I truly, truly love North American wild sheep. I like bears. I, I've done a lot of bears and done a lot of bear work, but just due to the sheer size of them now, with me just being by myself, I've kind of eliminated the bear stuff. So, um, but yeah, cougars are my deal, man. That's why it's big cat taxidermy. Because uh, so you said you don't take in bears any longer, right? You're you're primarily just taking in mountain lions, taking in big cats. Yep, taking in cats, uh, cats, leopards, and sheep. I've always loved leopards. Um, I'll never ever say no to a leopard just because if it's a nice break of the norm. There's there's something like mesmerizing to me about leopards. The spots, just how they're built. Like I, I've been so fortunate to be to Africa you know, three different times now. And um, yeah, I've, I've only skinned three leopards myself, but um, I've been leopard hunting uh, and I've got to see them up close. And man, there's just something about leopards. And so like African shipments, we just take the leopards out, you know, or if it's at another taxidermy shop, they'll just send me the leopard. And, and I hate kind of doing that, but it's up to the client. But I personally like to brokerage the shipment in. I'll pull the leopard out. And then I'll send everything else somewhere else. So, um, but yeah, it, it's just cats, 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 cats here. So, and it really, and two, the reason why I like cats too, not only the love for the cats, but physically, like I handle cats well. You know, the bears are big, heavy, you know, and take a, take a toll on your body, especially brown bears. So it just breaks down to what you can do efficiently by yourself in the shop and you're comfortable doing we heard that you only use Russian reflective eyes in your cats. And I would imagine that has kind of changed maybe due to like what you can get for eyes. Or do you still have the inside scoop on getting those eyes? Because I know eyes are hard to come by just in general. Um, So I've dealt with him for a long, long time. You know, what I did was is I just, I just figured out where the source was to those eyes. And it took me a while. And I kind of had to go in stalker mode on the, the whole interweb, right? And I found him. And I sent him an email and, and ended up, he was the guy and I was real, real hesitant at first. And I said, well, just send me, you know, six of this, six of this, six of this, and let's just see, you know, I was willing to take that chance. And he sent me my first batch and I was like, oh man, this is actually the guy, you know, this is where these eyes are coming from. And so I've just ordered from him for years and years and years, right? So I knew, you know, you kind of hear that buzz about Russia, right? And Russia was going to go to war and this was all going to be a mess. Yeah. So I put an order together three weeks before Putin drops the first bomb. And I'm trying to get out ahead of it. And usually he's really good. Within two and a half weeks, I have my eyes actually in the States. And it's crazy. I can send 10 sets or I can send 200 sets from Russia to me for 10 bucks. I mean, Tom Matuska can't even send me one set, you know, to me for 10 bucks. Right. So. So anyways, I order 200 sets of eyes. And we don't get them. We don't get them. Putin drops the first bomb. And then they go to war. Well, then the boycott goes out, right? We can't transfer funds. He can't ship direct to us. It, it turns into a mess. Well, we end up having to pay a contact of his in New York. And then he has to ship them to a different country to ship them to a different country to us. So 
but now um, our last shipment come directly to us and and actually funny enough I had ordered the same time Matuska had ordered and he swapped our orders oh so I get this order it's got all these bear eyes and it's got fox eyes and it's got all sorts of random stuff right so I call out there and I'm like hey this is Leland at Big Cat Taxidermy um, I think I got your guys' eye order because it comes from the same guy, right? And Mandy calls me back and she's like, uh, I think we have your order. Well, then they go looking through it and my order is incomplete. They had opened up my order and started selling my order. And so, oh, no. So what I That's did is... That's not good. I, I'd be like, so man. <laughs> I just took their cougar eyes that they had ordered out of their order sent them their stuff and then tom sent me my stuff but uh but yeah i just deal directly with him um but i always try to keep two to three hundred sets in stock um we're probably going to make another big order this week actually so just to stay out in front of it um i always want to have enough eyes that i can mount everything that's in my freezer right so it's just me staying ahead of everything but i haven't had a problem I think just because I keep so much stock, right? Yeah. You keep like a big inventory, right? Exactly. Exactly. Um, the only thing I had with the eye shortage that everybody else suffered was I couldn't get eyes for my sheep. You know, I had about... For your sheep? Yeah. So my bighorns, my doll sheep, you know, my stone sheep, mm. my desert sheep. And I really only like 250 IQs, Tohican 250 IQs in my sheep. Well, as we all know, you couldn't get Tohicans, right? You know? Right. And so I did have a little limited set of Tohican 250 IQs here that I had been kind of rat holing. Uh, but I had to go and get, you know, everything else that was available. But that was the only real eye shortage I suffered. So, but, so you, like you said, you got ahead of it. I did. And then if, uh, if like you were wanting to order eyes right now like today would that be an issue you think or no i don't think would you so be able to no okay no, That's I, no. So it I sounds like you've done your homework and really got the connection and it's a strong connection there and right right you know and it's funny um i've had a lot of other guys hit me up because they know that that's the only eye i use and they're hitting me up and they're like hey if you had any problems with the russian and I was like, no, I don't have any problems with it. Why? Well, he's not returning my emails and, you know, I'm trying to order a bunch of eyes. And I'm like, man, I, I, I don't know what to say, you know, because he always emails me back. Um, and he actually gives me a heck of a break. But, you know, when you're when you're ordering 200, 300 sets of eyes every time you order from the guy, you know, um, I I don't expect a break, but he dang sure gives me a break. So, and he takes care of me. And I, yeah, you know, and really to send them from Russia to, to even send 10, 20 sets, that's kind of a pain in the butt. So to where I'm ordering 200, 300 sets of eyes, you know, I hate to say it, but, you know, I guess I'm more his priority, you know, in making sure that I have my eyes. So, but yeah, I haven't suffered that. Um, one one shortage I did have a problem with was foam for a while. Um, you know, when we all kind of went mm, through that foam right. shortage when Texas froze. Yeah. Um, but I actually found a company in Florida and the foam was phenomenal. 
and they could ship it to me at halfway reasonable. And so I've actually, I still have their foam. I'm still carrying their foam. Oh, so you were able to find it like another good company to work with yeah. just out of happenstance. And so that's cool that, you know, you wouldn't have been able to find them before. Yeah. A guy that worked for me, uh, Steve Rowland, that is in, you know, South Carolina now. I hit Steve up and Steve's like, hey, I'm getting this stuff out of Florida and it's stout. You know, it's like four pound foam. Um, and the five gallon kit was cheaper than anybody else had, you know, and um, I only bring it in at five gallons a piece just so that it stays fresh. And, you know, we're always rolling through it, obviously, but um, man, it's great foam. And the guy never had a shortage, never was without it. And so we just, we've stuck with that guy, you know, just because he, he took care of us, you know. Are you able to like give other people the little like dish on where they can get the foam? <laughs> yeah, if if I had that info, <laughs> Heather's curious. <laughs> I'm horrible about keeping that stuff at my fingertips. You know, um, I stay in the back and just work. Um, my wife Jenny, she would have it right at her fingertips, so Jenny would be able to look that stuff up and have that name. Um, but like I said, I, Steve Rowland took care of me on that deal and uh out there in south carolina and uh so yeah we could look at that another foam company or foam that i really like to use actually a lot of is whatever they're getting at research mannequins i really like that foam um that foam has a great kick time to where i'm always altering and i need to be going as fast as i can go the kick time with that foam that research mannequins has is actually the best the stuff from florida is a little bit slower but it's, it's stout, you know, I don't have to go and back it as much, you know, cause I'm doing so much alterations, you know, you're obviously not going to pour it as hard as everybody else is pouring it inside a fiberglass mold. So you got to back it with something, whether you bondo it or mache it or whatever. So, but yeah, research mannequins has a great foam just cause it kicks so fast. Is it the foam that they use on their mannequins yeah. too? Yeah. Like, is it the same stuff? Yeah. 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 Mark, I just, you know, I get some of that from Mark. Same deal. He sends it to me five gallons both sides. But I love it. You know, instead of altering two, three things at one time with everybody else's phone, I can order. I can alter one form and just go through it. As soon as I make a pour, man, I can I can alter that and be pouring on the other end of the mannequin, and so I can just bounce back and forth. It's just kicking so fast, you know. So. I also saw that you were part of a collective artist piece at the World Show the one year, and it looks like, was it just the habitat that you were a part of, or was it like the cat and the habitat? No, so I I did the majority of it. So I had this idea, right? And me and Aaron Conley had been thinking about a piece for a long time. And I, I had taken this lion for myself. My daughter actually sales pitched me into killing the lion. Um, we were just out playing and ended up catching this great lion. But anyways, um, I wanted to do something that nobody had ever done. And so I approached Aaron Conley with an idea. And I said, hey, I've got this lion. I've got a pose in mind that I think will be really, really timeless, but it's laying down. It changes how laying down cats are done. Um, you don't have the scrunched up leg issues and the taxing issues. And I said, do you, would you be game? And he says, yeah, I'd be game. And so I went to Aaron Conley's and Aaron and I are really good friends. And we altered this body into the pose that we have. And that pose is sold through headquarters taxidermy supply. And then Aaron kept the body 
and duplicated that body. And then that's the sculpture that went to HQ. Well, then I called Dale Manning at Habitat Rock. And I said, hey, Dale, I've got this idea in my mind. Aaron and I built this body. I want you to build a rock formation for this thing. And then I want to take it to the Worlds in 2017. And I want to have a mounted version of it. I want to have the sculpture version of it that Aaron can put in the pre-sculpt division. And I want you to have the rock. And then all the taxidermists can go, okay, well, I can buy that form, I can buy that rock, and I can make it look like that. And so I wanted it to be a marketing deal, um, but I wanted it to showcase all of us. So what we did, we built the body. The body went to Dale. Dale built the rock. The body came back to me. The first rock came back to me. I then sculpted over the body. Aaron come down to the shop. We retweaked the body a little bit to make it a little bit different and uh, different than what you can buy out of HQ. Just make it mine, right? And so we reworked the body. Aaron left. He took his sculpture home. And then I built that lion. I built him 100%. I finished him 100%. Nobody else had him on, had that lion. I then took the rock formation. I made a few alterations to it. I set it up with the tree. I had it all seamed together, everything. We went to the World Show in Illinois. Dale and crew met me in the parking lot. We took it inside the show. Well, sorry, back that up. We painted the rock in the parking lot of the World Show. Oh, we held basic. Oh no way! Yeah, we held basically a rock <laughs> painting seminar in the World Show parking lot. So we paint the rock. Oh, that's cool. We put it on the base. We put all the tree on the base, everything. Um, snow it inside, and we take it in and set it up. And then Aaron brought his sculpture in. We set it on a rock that was finished. Dale already had copies in in his booth and stuff like that. So that was that piece. Um, you know, what Aaron did was help build the body. And what Dale did, Dale and his team of guys, they built that rock formation and built the rock. But the actual cat piece was was my work. Um, nobody else touched the lion. It's one of my personal lions. I still have it in the house. Um, so that was the, and that's the last show piece I have ever done right there. That's a good one to retire on though, for yes. sure. I think it's kind of confusing there because I'm looking at the page on Breakthrough. It says Habitat Rock Crew and then like dot, dot, you know, and everybody. So I think that's why it kind of looks right. like maybe it was only the Habitat, but it's kind of worded. Yeah, it but, was worded. And it was a beautiful piece. Yeah, thank you. Scored a 95. Yeah, nice. You know what? It's a cool piece. Uh, I think I can dang sure do better. Um, I think every piece you can do better. Um, I still look at it, you know, obviously I get to look at it every day. It's sitting in my trophy room in my house, right beside my TV and I pick it apart and I'm like, man, I can change that and I can change that. And I do that so much better now, you know? So, um, if I ever get the urge to go, um, you know, I dang sure know what I'd do different now. Yeah. And that piece, cause you won, what was it? Second place in the collective yep. artist division. Is yep. that right? Dang. Yeah. At the world show. And what a good one to kind of end right. on then. And then, you know, take a break and then. Maybe come back into it later. We'd love to see more, yeah. you know, big cat taxidermy, big cats. You know, <laughs> until until the kids are grown, uh, I'm just not going to rob that time with them. Um, you know, Phil yeah. Susie and I have talked a lot about that, you know, and me and Phil always catch up at whether it's Safari Club or now we catch up more often. And, 
you know, for a long, long time, Phil was always from, you know, 2019 on like Leland, are you going to go to the worlds? Are you going to go to the worlds? And I just, I'm not going, you know, the world show is the only show that I'd go to. I feel like there's maybe some unfinished business there. Um, I'd like to go, but until these kids are grown, uh, I owe it to them to stay home, you know, and two, every piece I get better and better. And, uh, you know, I also have to build that spark back up, you know, and I've got to have an idea when that idea hits and I have that spark or I have that right cap. That's another thing too. You got to have that right piece. And maybe when, maybe when that skin hits my hands, um, something that inspires you. Right. Right. And then, you know, one of those thoughts while you're laying in bed at night, thinking about cool pieces, when you finally decide, okay, I want to do that, right? And I think we're all trying to, on show pieces, we're all trying to figure out, well, what hasn't been done, right? And it doesn't matter if it's whitetail deer division or if it's it's life-size cats or whatever. Like, there's been so much done. So to try to find what hasn't been done, and I actually know kind of what I do, Um, And I'm not going to say what I do, but there's one pose in particular that has never, ever been done and and an expression that's never, ever been done. And so I think I might do that, but there's just not time in my schedule right now. When you're as far behind behind as I am, I can't, I can't rob my clients with show pieces. I just can't. Yeah. Very understandable. And like you said, it, it was funny you talked about when you're laying in bed at night, like, and you're thinking of these, I, I do the same thing. I'll be laying. That's when right. I do my best thinking. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Right. <laughs> exactly. When you're like literally dreaming about like your piece coming together. And then when that's all you can think about, yes. okay, then maybe you should put a piece together. Exactly. But yeah, if, it's, it's hard to force that too. So if you're not feeling it also, I mean, along with everything else you got going on in your life, if you're not feeling the feeling, well, you can't really force that either. I don't know. I mean, do you guys have the same problem? Like there's days you walk into the shop or whatever and, and you just don't feel it. Like you just have days where you can't sculpt an eye or you just, there's just days you don't feel artistic, right? Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, that's another thing. You can't force that either. So that's the tricky part about having a business <laughs> exactly. that requires you to tap into your creative mind. Right, Ugh. right, right. So you got to totally. You gotta have the right skin. You have to have the right idea. And you have to have the right drive to go do it and have that mindset. And what I wait for is like when that animal or that pose is the one that wakes me up at three, four o'clock in the morning. And I can't wait to go put together. Like that's when, you know, like, okay, that's the piece I need to go build. But I haven't had that. Like I, I've got a piece that I've got to build for a client that's been keeping me up at night. Um, it's a fighting cougar and a black bear over a dead mule deer buck. Um, all life-size pieces, big suspension pieces. Um, but it's not something I want to go show with. But it's still exciting and it makes you excited. And, exactly. And, right. and, and to me, it trips your trigger. Right. It, to me, it's like, okay, well, how am I going to attach everything? How am I going to build the armatures? And, you know, I'm going to have to have steel through that deer, into that bear leg, into that lion paw, you know, and all that has to be suspended and, and balanced, you know, and have it artistic, artistically presented, you know. 
and not just be an absolute eyesore. So um, that's the one piece that I've been spending the most time thinking about. Um, and then I've got two stone sheep that we're doing um, or I'm doing that are running um, both single leg suspensions um, and all going on one piece, uh, one pedestal piece. And it's for a husband and wife. Um, but those pieces, you know, those are the ones that are keeping me up at night. But it's not something I want to take to the world show. It's not stuff that, you know, has cast noses and cast mouths and, you know, all that stuff in it. It's just really over the top commercial grade stuff, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Those are definitely going to be some fun ones to do, regardless of being yeah. show pieces or not. This episode of Wildverse is sponsored by Pro One Performance Chemicals. Pro One specializes in tanning chemicals for the professional taxidermist. They offer a complete line of tanning products to provide you with everything you need to tan your next tide. I really like their Promax tan for my personal tanning projects. They make it so simple, it's easy to follow instructions printed right on the bottle. I actually used Pro One to tan the deer that I won with at Nationals, and I was using this same tan to tan some bobcats last week. It's super versatile. Not only does Pro One have you covered for all your tanning needs, they also sell Pro One Hide Paste, the industry standard in glue. Heather and I both use Pro One Hide Paste on every single mount. We love it. It has a thick consistency that makes it easy to apply to the form, yet it's soft and pliable enough that it can be easily manipulated under the skin after you throw the hide on. If you haven't tried Pro One Hide Paste, I am telling you, you are missing out. And now as of 2024, you can order Pro One products directly online at ProOnePerformanceChemicals.com. That's P-R-O, the number one, PerformanceChemicals.com. So I know you say about how busy you are, and I know I had actually talked to you probably, probably a couple of years ago, I was looking for a mountain lion hide, and you were talking about how bad you needed help. So I assume that's still the case, like you're still looking for help in your shop? I am, yeah. Um, anybody that follows me on Instagram or you know my personal Facebook page, I don't have a business Facebook page, but anybody that knows who I am and what I do, I've been looking for help for over a year and a half. Wow. And man, it, I, I'd take anybody. I mean, I'd take entry-level apprentice. I'd take finished taxidermist. I'd take a habitat finish person. I mean, absolutely anybody. And, and I've had some people in here, you know, and, and some really, really talented. I had one girl this last year um, and her super, super talented and a really a great young girl. But, you know, time of her life is just not right, right? Um, she's she's chasing a boyfriend and doing things, you know. So, but, man, we're struggling, just absolutely struggling. Um, I think where we live is a big, big drawback. Um, we've had some really talented people come work for us. And, and unfortunately, they don't ever last more than a year. Whether it's wives don't like being here, you know, because you don't have big you know, department store stuffs or, or you just don't have chain restaurants or whatever, those modern conveniences, right? A big city living, or you have single guys come and work and they first get turned on with the hunting and the outdoors and, and working here and doing the pieces that we get to do. But the dating pool is really, really small. And, <laughs> and next thing you know, like they've met somebody, through an app or whatever in a different town. And so, so that's, that's really, really been tough, but yeah, for a year and a half, we've, we've been looking for anybody, 
absolutely anybody. And it, it just hasn't happened. Um, I'm fortunate I get to stay in the back and I don't get to handle any business stuff. Um, nice. Very rarely do I do I get to talk to a client unless it's I have to fit a certain piece in a certain spot or I've got a major alteration piece. Then I'll talk to the guy. But I really I pawn those off on my wife. And she really does a phenomenal job of filtering those phone calls and filtering those wants of people wanting to talk to me and wasting my time because I need to be building, you know, um, and and a lot of times either my hands are covered in foam or they're covered in glue or or whatever or, or covered in blood because I'm prepping one. So, you know, but it, it's 12 hour days every day at, at the minimum. Um you know, short days are eight, eight hour days. I would work a lot of six day work weeks. You know, it's just nonstop. But the phone rings all day. The text messages hit all day. The emails hit all day. When you have 200 cougars in a backlog and you're operating between a 24 to 30, 32 month turnaround time, guys are impatient. And I understand it. I mean, I, I absolutely do understand it. You know, and when we took a lot of that stuff on, I had a full-time apprentice kid worked for me for three years between him and I, we would sew up 110 life-size lions a year. Wow. Plus do two, two dozen small cats. We do a couple dozen game heads every single year, but he was the exception to the norm. You know, he's the fastest guy I know other than me. He'll sew up a mountain lion and sometimes four hours, you know, he's a 20 year old kid, you know, so I can, from the time I walk through the door in the morning, like, you know, my skins are prepped, my forms are prepped. Like when I go to actually mount a lion, I, I clay the eyeballs, I get everything set up. I put him on six hours later, he's stitched up and he is, he's ready to go to the wash bay and he's ready to be shampooed and stuff like that. Slater was able to duplicate that. It took me about a year to get him to that level. But he could sew a lion up in four to five hours. We had lions sewed up by lunchtime. And then I was already prepping out in front of him and altering out in front of him. And then he'd come in and do the armatures and kind of get rock work roughed in and get sticks under legs and stuff like that set up. You know, him and I every week would mount three lions a week. And, you know, what a great help. Yep. And we'd go hard. Like I said, we'd go hard for three weeks. And then we'd have a week of finish and habitat stuff. But I haven't been able to duplicate that. I haven't been able to find that. I haven't even had anybody apply. That That's the ah, crazy so Not only has he spoiled you, but you're not even getting any kind of applicants interested, anything like that. I, I'm not getting anything. And the crazy part is, like, I've had some of the biggest hitters in the taxidermy world call me and ask me for their leftovers of their of my applicants. You know, Stuart Farnsworth at Monarch Taxidermy in Montana was one of them. Stuart called me. He's like, Leland, who didn't you who didn't you hire? I'll take whoever you have. Stuart, I, I didn't Dang, get, wow. I didn't get an applicant, right? And he's like, No way. I thought they'd be standing in line to work for Big Cat Taxidermy. I'm like, dude, I I thought that same way. You know, if somebody wanted to come be a cat taxidermist, what a better place. You know, another thing that I never thought about, you know, a good friend of mine down in West Texas, down there in Alpine, Ty Vick at Desert Taxidermy, you know, Ty probably opened up the other side of it. 
And Ty said, you know, Leland, I've been doing taxidermy for a long, long time. And he said, dude, I'd love to work for you. But he said, I'd be intimidated to come work for you. What you do day in and day out and I can how you that. do it, I don't know that I could come work for you. And I was like, Ty, like, I don't, I don't want to be like that. You know, and I don't need somebody to be just like me. I just want somebody to come be a part of the team and help take some of the burden and, and be a part of it. You know, and, and I don't care if I train my next competition. I truly, truly don't. Like, you know, I had one guy, he called me for two and a half hours. He's like, I just really want to come work for you for a year. And then I want to go home and do it on my own. And I was like, come on. Come on, let's go. He says, well, I need to have a discussion with my wife and I'll call you back tomorrow. That was six months ago. I've never heard from him. Crickets, huh? Crickets. And I would have taken that. Man, that's like, I feel like I need to almost stop listening to you because I'm like, man, what would be better than to <laughs> move to Colorado and work on cats and go to rodeos? <laughs> right. I know. No kidding. I'm like, that's, that sounds real tempting. Yes. <laughs> like Slater and I, we, we like to work on a four day work week. You know, we'd start at six in the morning. And we'd roll till, in the summertime, we'd roll till four or five o'clock in the afternoon. But we took Friday, Saturdays, and Sundays off, you know, and so we had three-day weekends. I tried that. I advertised that. Four-day work weeks. You know, I'll pay piece rate to finish guys. I'll do above hourly. I mean, I even offered to take guys mountain lion hunting as part of it. Like, you know, Steve Rowland, <laughs> Steve Rowland worked for me three different times. And Steve's killed two lions with me, you know, and that was just all em employee appreciation. Yeah. You know, I, I tried it with. That was like a, a team building exercise. <laughs> right. Right. And, and I tried that with Daniel Mang. I mean, I tried and tried to hire Daniel and Daniel, I'll catch you lions. Like we'll go lion hunting and, and everything. And, and Daniel's chasing his own dream. And I, I helped him push, push him down that path. And, and the kid is doing really, really good. And I'm super, super proud of him. But man, I've tried everything to get people to come work. Um, you know, but it's just not meant to be. Yeah. Well, hopefully maybe this episode will kind of help if it gets in the right, right. ear and, you know, right. maybe even if that person doesn't listen, they know a person, you know, hopefully exactly. that kind of puts a bug in somebody's ear. Somebody's yeah. out there for you. I'm sure. I hope um, so. Let me, let me touch on something you just mentioned. So, you know, I mentioned your you're a houndsman at first, you know, when we first introduced you here, you run hounds, you've got dogs. And so we would um, like to kind of touch on that too. What got you into hound hunting? So in 1996, I went on my first lion hunt and it was a year after I graduated high school and was very fortunate and killed a really, really nice lion. Um, with some guys here in Craig and uh, I probably should have never wanted to lion hunt again and that night it ended up being about 17 below zero the lion fell off about a 350 foot cliff we didn't get the lion out until two oh. days later like it was a mess but there was like anything that can go wrong did go, go wrong. wrong type of thing 100 <laughs> percent, it okay, went wrong dang. but there was something about the chase and it was something about the dogs um i was raised with bird dogs and i love bird dogs and i i love shooting stuff with dogs 
but there was something different about hounds. And then like two years later, I don't know if you guys have heard of like Country Jam USA. It's a great big music festival in Grand Junction, Colorado. And um, I was at Country Jam and ran into a bunch of friends and, and there was this guy there and we've been friends ever since that meeting. Um, and the guy's name's Bobby Farmer. And he lives in Norwood, Colorado. And, and Bobby grew up being a houndsman. His dad was a houndsman. And they hunted lions, bears, bobcats forever. And so I told Bobby about that hunt. He's like, you can come hunting with me anytime. You know, come down. And so that next winter, I was like, yeah, I, yeah, I'm, I'm in. You know, so I called Bobby and uh, ran down there to Norwood and got to go lion hunting with him in the wintertime and and uh, just like just fell in love with hunting at you know and lion hunting and I always said like if I was fortunate enough to be able to get my own dogs I would and finally I was about I'd been about 23 and I was kind of in a situation where I thought I could have a couple dogs and and really, I wasn't even real set up to have a couple dogs. But I called Bobby and said, hey, I'd like to have a couple dogs. And so Bobby gave me my first two dogs. And they were entry-level dogs. They weren't nothing finished. I had to spend a bunch of time with them. And, but anyways, I, I had a couple hounds, and I was, I was just excited to go hunting, right? And the first year was horrible. I couldn't catch a lion to save my butt. And then the next year, he gave me a good old finished dog. And that dog's name was Luke. And Luke was my very first finished hound that I could go catch a lion with. Well, he he started teaching all them other dogs how to go catch a lion. You know, and at first, I'd only catch two, three, four lion a year. You know, and, and then you'd get better dogs. And you learn more about hunting. And you get more involved in it. And and stuff like that. And so it just grew. Um you know, and then we opened up Big Cat in 04, and I kind of had to slow down. And then, you know, we got the business up and rolling super, super strong. And, you know, hound hunting was kind of my hobby, along with team roping. You know, but living up here in the northwest corner where you got so much snow, like, I couldn't rope much in the wintertime. You know, so I'd rope in the spring, summer, and fall, and then I'd hunt hounds in the wintertime. And so, you know, I just lion hunt all winter long you know, every weekend or if it snowed, I'd go hunting. And uh, then later on, you know, I got some really, really good dogs, ended up with some really good private ground, had all the equipment, had all the, you know, extra trucks and side-by-sides and snowmobiles and all that stuff. And, you know, so we, we started running some hunts and, uh, you know, got licensed with the state and got permitted with BLM and and I had really, really good help in the shop as well. You know, that was the time when Steve worked for me and I had a couple of one or two other employees at different times. And that afforded me to hunt quite a bit. And I would run usually on average about 15 lion hunts in the wintertime. And obviously those hunts would also feed the shop, right? You know, the lions we were catching and, and taking, we were mounting. So that was putting another dozen lions, 12 to 15 lions in the shop. And so it was a win-win situation, you know. So, but then Steve leaves and, you know, went on to do what he's doing now. And uh, it just got to where it was robbing a bunch of time out of the shop. And so we, we quit running hunters 
right now, if I run a hunter, it's in a trade, you know, like we, we traded access deer hunts to take the kids hunting or something in Texas and got to catch a lion or, um, like this year, a really good friend of mine that's hunted with me for years. Um, he got some hay from a rancher, um, did a big hay deal with this major landowner and the guy wanted to kill a lion and Mitch was like, Hey, can we catch this guy a lion in exchange? And so we did, you know, we used our license and our permit to validate that trade for him. And so, but anymore, you know, I'm whittled down to three dogs. Yeah. I used to carry, you know, about a half a dozen dogs here at the house. And then I have two guys that hunt with me and they always had a half a dozen dogs. So, you know, we had surplus of 18 to 20 dogs all the time and 20 dogs on feed is a lot of dogs. And I, I pay for those guys' dog food. Um, they take all the tips out of the hunts. We pay all their vet bills. We, we pay them to, you know, run their equipment and stuff like that. And so it just got to be kind of a mess. Um, but now we're just down to hobby hunting. Um, two, it got to where it was a job, you know, having to get up every day at four o'clock in the morning and go grind tracks and compete for those, those lions was really, really tough. Another thing too is our lion population's down. You know, CPW changed our management plan and our quotas two years ago against most all houndsmen's wishes. You know, we went to all the meetings. I went to every single meeting and I fought it and fought it and fought it. And who handles more lions in the state of Colorado than Leland Rainier and Big Cat Tax Army? Nobody. So I see already what's coming in. I know what the availability is. I even I can tell you the best week in the year to go kill a lion. And I was telling these people, this is a bad, bad plan. This is a bad, bad plan. Well, they had their agenda. CPW had their agenda. The commission had their agenda. So they put that in. And all of us real educated lion hunters said, within two years, we're going to feel it. Well, we're two years in, and it, it it's brutal. It's absolutely brutal. What they had done is they had allowed guys to kill the surplus you know you take a unit that only had like 10 lions available to kill but there was let's just say 30 40 lions living there but we only killed the 10 well we're leaving 30 30 lion on the landscape well that helped repopulate everything else especially some units that were real liberal quota wise you know we could go down there and kill all them lion every winter but we had this surplus up here that would repopulate in the summertime. Well, now they've killed their surplus. So it, it used to be the situation like when in 1996, my very first lion hunt, no joke, we could go cut, we could go cut 10 lions a day. Wow. And you just pick the big, big tong. And you'd run the big tong because you had intentions to take the big tong. You didn't look at sub-adult lions. You never, ever turned your dogs loose on a female, ever. You know, you just ran big tom lion. Now, we're talking 10, 12, two weeks to even find a tom track. Wow. You know, I'm camped on three females. I've got three females located. Um, we actually caught the one. She walked out and cut a road one day, and it was still snowing, and it was just an obvious lion track, and... And we caught her about Christmas week is when we caught her and a big, beautiful, gorgeous female. We turned on her, caught her there in about a mile, had no intention to take her. 
Um, so we know exactly what she is. She's walking the road almost every single day. Nobody else can touch her. She's in a bunch of private ground. Um, and we know coming the back into February when those toms are really running, looking for females, you know, if there's a tom lion anywhere in the neighborhood, he's going to come check on her. She's a breeding age, you know, and like I said, she's one of three. But I have not caught a tom lion and taken a tom lion since Christmas. And we did we did trail a really, really good lion last weekend. Um, it just got hot on us. Um, we were kind of late in the day. Uh, we didn't do our homework. We didn't have him cut down to a really, really tight circle. We were miles behind him. Um, we trailed on him most of the day. And when we walked off the mountain that afternoon, like dogs were walking, but the snow had all melted and the mud's running down the hill. And it just wasn't ideal trailing conditions. We got beat. But that was that was a really, really good Tom Lion. Um, we were hunting him this weekend, you know, looking for him, looking for him. Um, can't turn him up. I think he's just living on a burn off hillside and a bunch of big red cliffs, um, not making tracks, not coming out of there. And it's just kind of, kind of a bad enough spot. You don't want to walk off in there, you know, and we've had to do that in the past. If we've had hunters, you know, we'll just turn all the good dogs loose and we'll walk off into a spot and hopefully strike one up and go, you know, go trailing down, you know, with this country up here, you're either hunting snow or you're hunting frozen dirt. We don't have the luxury a lot to hunt that really nice dirt like the desert guys do. You know, you take the guys in Western Colorado or Southern Utah, Arizona, West Texas, that have those really good dirt conditions that hold a lot of sand. You know, those guys can trail, you know, all the time. So when we're melting up here, then it freezes at night and those lions will travel on top of that crust. And then that sun starts hitting it and that scent evaporates up out of that track well them dogs ain't got nothing to go on you know and so you just end up beating up dogs and running out of dog power and stuff so and where we don't have to kill this lion i mean we honestly don't um yeah we're looking for one for my son and we're looking for one for my hunting buddy's uh girlfriend you know we'll wait for him to come out uh we got till the end of march and those are the only two tags we really need to fill this year you know, with us staring down the barrel of this ballot initiative deal. Right. So I guess if I'm uh, putting my tinfoil hat on, do you think the, you know, the regulation changes that you experienced in the last few years were kind of like the, the prelude to the ban initiative kind of being talked about right now? Do you think there's any correlation or do you think it was just bad management? No, I do. You know, inside those meetings when they wanted to run that new new quota system, their lion hunting management plan. I said, they're going to look at this as an, as a unlimited take, right? Here we went to these great big units with these great big liberal quotas to where we had it so fine tuned per game unit, you know, single, single number animals per game unit, right? Now there's really no self-regulation. They thought houndsmen would self-regulate houndsmen. No, that doesn't happen. What it does is it builds competition, right? So if I'm on a piece of BLM somewhere, government ground, public ground, and I let a lion go, you know, because I didn't want to take it, you know, it wasn't the right sex, it wasn't the right age or whatever, somebody else will come right in there behind me and catch and kill that lion, you know? And so a lot of guys are like, man, I'm not letting it go because the next guy that shows up is going to kill it. So I said that in those meetings, guys, this looks like unlimited take and they're going to, they're going to be on our butt. Boom. What did we have that year? We had the house bill, right? They ran the house bill. 
It was killed in Senate Ag. We all showed up. We all fought that. We all donated money. We went to the Capitol. We beat it in Senate Ag. When we walked out of that room, we all walked out of that room. HSUS said, we'll see you guys with a ballot initiative. And I said right there, guys, we've got to get on the offense. Us as hunters, we're always on defense, right? We're always waiting for them to make their play. And then we're scrambling to protect our rights. And I said, we need to come on offense. Well, we have a really, really good representative that was on the Wildlife Commission and a former game warden. And his name's Perry Will. And Perry Will, I've known Perry Will a long, long time. And roped with his son and been around Perry when he was a game warden. And, you know, Perry's very, very pro hunting, very pro houndsman, very pro lion hunting. And I brought it up with Perry and I said, Perry, we need to have a right to hunt bill. We need to run a right to hunt bill in this state. He said, Leland, I have it. It is sitting on my desk, but it will never, ever get passed. He said, I can get it through the House. I can get it through the Senate. But when it hits our governor's desk, it's going to get vetoed. I was going to say your governor and his, uh, doesn't your your governor's husband, yes. isn't he a little bit like anti-hunting? He's major anti-hunting. And that's the problem right there. Yeah. It isn't so much the governor. It's his husband, Marlon. That's the problem. He is anti-hunting. He's vegan. He's anti-agriculture. You know, so in this second term, we also knew that in his, in this second term, that was the chance that he could really leave his mark and he could really, really hurt us. He had to play fairly on his first term, you know, so he gains re-election, right? Well, now look what we've got. We've got wolves on the ground. We're staring down a ballot initiative with our lion hunting and bobcat hunting, you know, but Marlin is the driving force behind all this. Yeah, so I guess, um, can we kind of explain like what exactly this ballot initiative is trying to initiate? Like, so it's a trophy hunting ban, but then in the wording, it's mountain lion, bobcat, and then lynx gets thrown in there, I think as well, which kind of is like, it's just a wordy, like a play on word type thing. Exactly. Yeah. So when they first started this deal, it was labeled trophy hunting, right? Because they say, well, the cats are taken just strictly for trophy. They're not processed for human consumption. They're not eaten. You know, people are not eating those cats. Well, mountain lion, it's state statute. They have to be processed for human consumption. And actually, lions are very good to eat. Um, it's a white meat. It tastes like pork. Um in fact, we've had lion hams, smoked lion hams for Christmas breakfast. Wow. We, we've, we've done, ton, yeah, we've done tons and tons of lion loins. Um, we make tons and tons of green chili with them. Like, done a lot of stuff with lion meat. And you have to take meat in Colorado, is that right? Like, you exactly. have to you have collect to. the meat when you harvest a lion. Yes, you have to. So, even if I kill him in a really, really bad hole, we pull all the quarters, we pull all the back straps, pull the inner loins. I backpack everything out. Um, so we bring that all in. You know, the bobcat is a big controversy with them because of the fur trade. Obviously, anti-hunting, anti-fur all goes hand in hand. And so they tie the bobcat in on this deal and consider the bobcat as a trophy. Well, then they put lynx hunting on it. Lynx are not available to hunt in the lower 48 at all. They're under federal protection. Right. But their whole thinking is, is if federal protection ever gets lifted 
in the lower 48, they're going to already put a ban on them. You know, and really their link links introduction was pretty much a failure. You know, there are still some links in the state of Colorado, but a lot of them have went northbound. They went home where they came from. But it was an all-out war. Um, you know, the great powers that be that are fighting this, they got trophy hunting lifted off of it, thank God. The words trophy hunting, um, that was... Oh, a, that's good news. That is a really, really big win, you know, and, and that went through Colorado Supreme Court and everything got lifted. So now it's just down to a cat hunting ban. Um, and it's really cougars and it's really bobcats. They're collecting signatures right now. They need 124,000 signatures, but they're not doing it, you know, like conventionally they would always hire somebody. They'd hire an organization to collect these signatures. They've decided not to hire a company to collect signatures. So they're doing it on volunteer basis. Well, you're not going to have qualified signature gatherers for one. And two, if you're a volunteer, how long are you really going to volunteer? You know, you're going to go downtown Denver with your little clipboard and get a few signatures and then you're kind of going to squirrel out. But how many of those are actually valid Colorado, you know, registered voter signatures? You know, and that all has to be verified. And I'm not saying they're not going to get their signatures because I think that they will. I think that they're going to get their spot on the ballot, unfortunately. You know, it, it's scary, scary to think what's going to happen or what could happen in the state. You know, and obviously with my business and what I do, that is a real, real concern. I mean, it's going to take out, it'll take out 60% of the cats that I receive. You know? Right. And because obviously Big Cat Taxidermy, that's your whole business. Right. And so hopefully this is like kind of where, you know, if let's say it does pass, right? Hopefully that would be kind of all it is. It, like if it passes, because I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with California, yes. for example. Yes. Because I'm from California and I have personal experience like with this and I did taxidermy there. And for anyone who doesn't know, California is a total ban on mountain lions. You can't even import mountain lion pieces into California. So even if you're a California resident, yeah, you can't even have them tan there. If you're a California resident, you can't go to, for example, Cal or Colorado hunt a mountain lion there and you can't bring it back in. Exactly right. Along with mountain lions, they have banned bobcat hunting there. Yep. Thankfully, you can still import bobcats into California, but total mountain lion ban in California, it's completely ridiculous. And I think, you know, I have experience with this too. And I can totally say that there is absolutely no sensible reason for the complete ban. Right. I get kind of the reasons why, but it's completely senseless and it makes people out to be outlaws when they're not. And it's, it really grinds my gears for sure. Right. Exactly. Right. Here's the worst part about it. Like if they ban it, those cats are still going to die, you know, but it's going to be government killers killing them. And that's exactly how California works. Exactly it's, right. it's government trappers right. who are able to kill mountain lions. Still, they're not totally, you know, thriving and surviving. They are still being killed. Yeah, exactly. And they're being destroyed and they're being left behind. And you want to talk about total yep. loss of resource. You know, another thing that those taxpayers don't understand is instead of me footing the bill or us footing the bill by buying the license and all that stuff, they are actually going to have to start paying to kill these lions. You know, that's what they don't understand. Yep. Okay. You don't want us to hunt them. Well, all of a sudden, your tax money is going to go to killing these lions. And they're just going to be left in the woods. 
And and U.S. Fish and Wild, or sorry, USDA is going to destroy that animal as far as like destroy the hide, cut the hide into pieces, crush that lion's skull so nobody can come in behind them and obtain that skull. Like it is unreal. Yeah, exactly. Unreal what those government killers have to do to destroy that. And I mean, it's it's just an absolute shame, you know, especially to people like us that you know, love them and, you know, actually turn them into something. And we, we see the revenue, you know, it, and it, it goes so many different ways, right? It's a guy coming into the state of Colorado and he's buying a mountain lion license and he's, he's, whether he's paying an outfitter, you know, and then the outfitter's having to buy tires and he's having to buy gas and he's having to buy vehicles and, and all this stuff, like the amount of money that that, animal actually brings back to the state is unreal and you take a small community like craig colorado you know elk hunting mecca of the world right elk hunting capital of the world it's been proven that that non-resident dollar turns over seven times inside the community before it leaves wow so we're gonna lose that as a state you know as every little rural community they don't realize the trickle-down effect of this one issue you know, how this is going to impact so many different facets of, you know, life for everybody yeah. who is involved in this at all. Right. And their tax dollar is going to actually pay to kill the animal. Yeah. You know, and destroy <laughs> yeah, the, the irony. animal. <laughs> yes. How ironic. <laughs> yeah. I just can't. It's insane. I don't understand. It. And I don't know why, like, USDA records are not released to the public like that. You know, like, that's in black and white with the bear deprivation in the state of Colorado. You know, when they outlawed in 1992 our hounds and our bait and our spring season, you know, all of a sudden these USDA killers had to go into overdrive. You know, and it, it's an unfortunate deal. We're talking of government killers taking 1,500 bears a year in the state of Colorado, and the deprivation costs are upwards towards $2 million annually. Well, now you're going to stick cougars on top of that? You know, and then like locally in Northwest Corner, where we just took that huge loss in winter kill last year from the biggest winter we've ever had recorded. You know, so we're down on our ungulates and we have a bear problem. And then y'all just released our brand new resident dogs that we just got, our wolves. Right. And then you're going to ban our line. Oh my gosh. So yeah, not only financially... But conservationally. Right. I was just talking to some friends from Colorado. They're down in Meeker and they were telling us a little bit about the wolves too. And yeah, yeah. um, so they want to release fifty of them, but they also were telling me that if they only want them on the western slope. They don't want if they cross right. over to the eastern side, they're gonna be killed or chased back. Like and the eastern side's who's voting for this, and the western side right. is right. who's voting no. It just exactly. It's so, and they also told me that they they're talking about maybe releasing grizzlies and wolverines in the future. Have you heard anything about? Well, that? they want to. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So the wolverine is the next deal, and that's a multi-state deal um, that they want to put those on the ground, and then yeah, they want grizzlies. Well, you don't have the area here to support grizzlies. You know, we don't have the area to support wolves, for one, you know. Aren't they, they're starting to migrate into Colorado naturally, kind of like wolves were as exactly. well. Grizzly bears, wolves, they're all sort of migrating in naturally. 
exactly claiming their uh, ancestral range right to some degree right like you know and even wolverines there's been wolverines spotted in the state of colorado you know but really we don't have really the best climate for one to house those animals you know that was that was part of the reason with the kind of the poor lynx program you know there wasn't enough snowshoe hares you don't have enough boreal forests. You know, there's a certain type of climate and a certain part of terrain that house wolverines, house grizzly bears. You know, a grizzly bear is very, very adaptable. I will give him that. Um, he can live just about anywhere he wants. A wolverine's a little bit different. But, um, but yeah, they're going to naturally show up, you know, just because of being around Yellowstone. Um, you know, those sub-adults are going to reach out and try to find their own home range. That's how those original wolves got to Colorado, right? Is Wyoming was kind of getting populated. And so those wolves are traveling and they ended up here in Colorado. Yeah. So what a mess you guys got going on over there, to be honest. It, it is a mess. <laughs> there's and there's a lot. And why does the East Slope get to depict what the Western Slope has to live with every single day? That too, you know, to tie it back into like, you know, California, like where I'm from, right. there is such a stark contrast between like Southern California and a lot of Northern California, you know, not all of Northern California, but similar. And that yep. the mass majority of people are making rules that affect statewide when it's not them, you know, like the right. California government, they, they do not relate to the common people whatsoever. Not even just the common people, like rural people, anyone, they are totally out of touch with what people are actually experiencing and so they're making rules that don't actually like practically apply to people and then the same thing is happening there in Colorado so it's like you know obviously California is far worse and I can attest yes. to that but like Colorado unfortunately is like right behind it, it is it is exactly right yeah it's not even it's not just uh theoretical it's it's actually scary that it can happen right you know like with the wolf deal those people vote the wolves in they don't want them on their side of the mountain. You know, they want us to live with them every single day. And they might come up within 20 years. They'll come to our side of the mountain. Maybe they'll see one or they'll hear one or, you know, whatever. You know, but we live with them every day, right? And and we see what they do every single day. You know, and it would be the same day, same thing with the lions, right? You know, they have lion problem after lion problem after lion problem down there. You know, Boulder, Golden, you know, Fort Collins, Colorado Springs, all that. They have lion problems already. Well, they're going to magnitude that with this ban. You know, this side of the state, we regulate them. We take care of them. We actually give them a natural fear of humans. You know, we don't have human lion conflict. But, you know, they they want certain things that they can maybe go enjoy on their weekends away. But we have to live with it every single day. You know, um, my little girl, I mean, she's not little anymore, but she's deathly afraid of wolves. I mean, deathly afraid. It's weird. And, uh, you yeah, know, I don't blame her. She she's scared to death. Nobody knows where these wolves are at. Right. Like the governor's kept them all hush hush and got even got CPW on hush. And nobody knows where these yeah, wolves they're, are. They're tracking them, right? They've all got collars. Oh, yeah, they've all got GPS they're, collars. They're not on. saying, obviously, no. where they are. Yeah. No, uh. but here, this little, here, this daughter of mine, I mean, we've got horses standing out in the pasture. And we've got a brand new little weanling colt out there. You know, she's scared to oh, death. Oh, gosh. Yeah. She's scared to death. Then wolves are going to come 
even here on the edge of town and take out her brand new weanling colt. You know, and those are real, real concerns with everybody. You know, there's no transparency from the state. There's not even transparency inside CPW. You know, from the governor's desk all the way down to the game warden. You know, those game wardens are on hush orders. Um, even these local guys, they barely even know when these wolves are traveling in their areas. You know, the commission and the governor will not. The local game wardens. Right. These these local game wardens, local area wildlife managers, they don't know when those wolves are showing up. You know, and so here they have a huge discontent with their landowners who they've developed relationships with, their outfitters they've developed all these relationships with, you know, and those, you know, a lot of these ranchers and a lot of these guys are, you know, like hitting these game wardens up, like, hey, what do you know? And what are we going to do? And and they're like, guys, we don't know. Like, we don't know if they're here. We don't know what's going to happen when they start killing your livestock, you know, all that stuff. And, you know, there's one rancher in Walden, Colorado, that suffered a massive amount of losses, you know, several cattle now, some dogs. And he wrote a letter to the governor and wanted him to, you know, put into action the 10-J rule to eliminate the, those couple problem wolves that have been causing him all the problem. And the governor, governor vetoed it and said, no, I'm not coming in there and taking Was wolves. that prior to the wolf introduction? No. Like, was that wolves like up in the, oh no, Well, they, they were killing prior to the reintroduction, right? We already had those wolves. They were already causing problems, but nothing could be done with them because there was no federal ruling. And no state management. Well, they adopt the federal ruling of the 10J rule. Our wolves hit the ground, which was all secrecy. They dump them out. You know, there was some area or some media involved in it, but nobody knew. So at that point, when those wolves hit the ground, the 10J rule went to an effect. What is the 10J rule? 10J rule is a federal, is through U.S. Fish and Wildlife, and it was their suggested rule giving management plans to the state, management availability to kill problem animals. So they adopted the 10-J rule, the state did. So Mr. Gittleson wanted them to invoke the 10-J ruling and take care of these couple wolves that were problems, killing cattle, killing dogs. Governor said no, and that's all public. That's not hearsay. That is all over the internet. That's all over the news, everything. The governor denied that. He said, no, I'm not coming in there and having guys kill them wolves. You know, so here are ranchers suffering damage, you know, from these wolves. And we have management plans set in place that we could use, but he's not going to allow them to use it. So right now, like if a wolf was attacking your livestock, obviously you can do something about that, right? If it's in the act of something, nope. I would assume. No, nope. you can't do that either. Nope. Wow. So what is the line? Like, does it have to be attacking a human or something? Like, yep. is that the only uh, probable cause? You better be chewed up. Yeah. If I have two wolves. Wow. That's insane. If I have two wolves come in my pasture tonight and I watch them kill that colt, I can't do nothing. I can call the game that warden. Is Insane. The game warden can contact U.S. Fish and Wildlife and contact the CPW head office. They might issue a permit, but probably would not. So I have to stand there and I have to watch that colt be killed by them wolves. And I can't do nothing about it. I can go to jail. I can be fined $100,000. I have to sit there and watch that. That's what's wrong with this. Man, I'd go 
I'd go stick my foot in its mouth. You know? <laughs> <laughs> hey, you're allowed. You're allowed attacking. to haze them, right? So yeah, so like get them out of there just by like running them off with a truck. I mean, what or do something. I do? Do I but run like, out there with a baseball bat? You know, I I can't. I would. You I know, I can't even <laughs> physically hit them. I can't harm them. You know, that's what's wrong with this whole deal. That's that's crazy that that is the extremism that's going on right now is that you can't even do that. But like, you know, at what point are you going to have, you know, obviously something like that was going on. You might be like, this is ridiculous. I've had enough. I don't know. But, you know, it's it would have to really come down to that. happening. Honestly, we've had a lot of those discussions. We, we really have inside this yeah. household, inside this business, um, this family. Um, we have considered leaving the state. I mean, 100%. You know, another thing, too, mm -hmm. you ban lion hunting and you take out 60% of what I'm making a living on. Why should I stay here? Although I'm a Colorado native, born in 1997, lived here my whole life, never lived in another state, have paid my taxes my whole life. I have been a hunter since I got my hunter's ed at the age of 10. I I've paid preference points fees. I I mean, it goes on and on. I make my living 100% off the hunting industry inside Colorado. But you ban lion hunting and you take away my availability to make money and in turn pay that state tax. Why should I stay here? Right. You're taking away my livelihood, you know, by banning that. Um I, I mean, it's tough for me to think about leaving because this is all I've ever known. But it's damn sure hard for me to stay. I mean. No, I mean, I, I can definitely relate being from California right. and not living there anymore and just how hard that is. And that, you know, it's that's my home. It's so beautiful. Everything like same exact situation. Right. And then just having a, a climate that isn't supportive of what I do. You know, family, I mean, I still, I got uncles, an uncle here. My little brother lives right here in town. Um, my grandma's still here, you know, and you don't want to leave that. Um, but when a state takes away your rights, you know, you think about the hound, yeah. you think about my hounds that are back here behind the shop, you know, that's another equation. Like, what do you do with your dogs? You know, they're parts of your family. You know, these kids are very much attached to these dogs. You know, I, if they ban the lion hunting, uh, I mean, I could sell a couple dogs, but there's one dog back there that I can't. But how do you sell? It's like selling your kids, right? Like, you know, yeah, you just, you, couldn't you love them so much, um, but you owe it to them to go hunting. So what do you do? You sell out and you move somewhere where you can go hunting. Side note, but could you guys still... Um, hound hunt bears under this ruling there's think? no like, is, does that have any effect there's no hound hunting oh you can't with bears in the state of colorado hasn't been since 92 oh so okay so then obviously that's out as well so it's not even an option yeah right okay yeah, so yeah, yeah so i know our friends in colorado as well they are i mean they're second oh, actually i don't know how many generations down native colorado They've built their elk outfitting business. Like his dad had it. He took it over. They have two boys. Right. And right. they're looking at moving because they're like, look, like we're right. we're building, like their business is fantastic. And they're building this for these right. two young boys. Well, in 20 years, what yeah. what's there going to be? Probably nothing. So right. may as well move somewhere else and 
started up that way. Exactly right. Um, you know, fortunately, these kids of mine don't want in this business. And I've actually kind of steered them out of it because I don't know what tomorrow will bring with the hunting industry. Um, and, and oh, wow, that's interesting. Even the taxidermist. Your dad was a taxidermist and you being a taxidermist, you would kind of think that you'd want to continue that lineage. But you're obviously thinking like, you know, what is the future going to hold? It, well, I mean, you and you're a taxidermist, too. You know how hard it is. So. Right. Right. Well, you're under you're under votes like this. Right. You know, they ban the yeah. lion hunting or let's just say, and then they're going to start cutting down on all big game hunting, you know, with this winter kill situation, they're going to go to draws and, and all that stuff. So how much availability is actually there? You know, how much availability will those kids to have to do this? You know, me and me and Phil Susie had this conversation two years ago at Safari Club, you know, and feels like Leela and I, I will make it till retirement doing cats and solely doing cats. I don't know if you'll you'll be granted the same thing. And I said, I agree 100%, Phil. I, I foresee myself retooling. Um, I foresee myself going back into game head work um, or other other forms of it. Um, I'll always do stuff to have fur. I, I will never be broke enough to be a fish or a bird taxidermist. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think we can both relate. <laughs> I would rather go sell used cars or something like that. So, um, yep. <laughs> um, so I would go back to you know doing game heads and and you know chasing other stuff. But and I I think that that is a harsh reality. I think that I will see that directly. You know, I've been offered some subcontract stuff. I've had a lot of guys contact me and say, "Hey, Leland, if they ban it." and you end up getting to where you need some work, give me a call. I don't care where you're at, what state you're in. I will ship cats to you. You build the cats. I'll ship them. We'll ship them back to us. We'll habitat them. We'll even finish them. Um, So those options are out there too. Um, So we'll just see what happens. I think I'll be fortunate. I'll retire doing what I'm doing. Um, You know, as long as my body holds up with what I do, you know, so. And obviously, right. as taxidermists, you're always going to have physical issues. Um, you know, I've already had carpal tunnel. I've had both shoulders done. Like, you know, you just tear stuff up. But I don't, you know, I'm not mounting a bunch of moose heads anymore. And I'm not mounting big bears. I'm not mounting buffalo anymore. And so, you know, it's a little bit more body friendly. So we'll just see what happens, you know. But at 40, 46, you sit there and think, well, how much longer you got? you know, and what are you going to do? And, you know, but I think I'll, I'll always do what I do, you know, until I've had enough and call it quits. Yeah. And I mean, God willing, you'll be able to do it for the rest of your career, you know, and there won't be any major issues. You won't have to move. You can keep working on cats and, you know, there's not an import ban or anything like that. Right. And I think I have a big enough name and I have a big enough following, um, you know, and ideally anyways, it put me caught up. Like if they banned it, <laughs> I, silver lining <laughs> i think i'd get caught up um you know another thing i've said is is if i do get caught up i'd like to do somewhere between 35 to 50 real high-end super super signature pieces done completely by me yeah you know skinned by me uh built by me you know and it doing 50 pieces a year you build one super all-star cat every single week and finish a cat every single week. Um, or whether it be a sheep or, 
you know, a black bear or whatever, but you could do it over the top. You know, you could have cast nose inserts and, you know, custom cast mouse. And we already do some custom mouse. Um, but you could really have an over the top piece. You know, if you were building show quality stuff, you know, and say you did 35 pieces a year, what could I charge? And another thing too is I could put right. I could put that on a schedule. You drop this cat off January 15th, I will have him back to you by January 15th next year. You know, 100% done by me. You know, um, I think that that's something that really, really intrigues me. Um, so if I get caught up, that's ideally what I want to do. I want to get it reined back in because right now it's been like a truck speeding down the highway with no steering wheel. And it's been a little scary. <laughs> Yeah, so it sounds like whatever happens, like you can roll with it, you know, like you're, you're going to roll with it regardless. Maybe it's, there's a lot of silver linings involved either way. And then also, you know, that might be what you do anyway. Right. Exactly. So right. That's, you know, you'll roll with exactly. it. Exactly. We'll see. We'll just see what happens. Um, to, we are, we are putting <laughs> yeah. up a fight. Um, you know, I've made them a pretty large donation um, with a big life-size custom piece that they're going to auction off um, and help. Oh, awesome. help drum up some funds and you know really it's to for education right we need to run some commercials and we need to educate the non-educated um so we'll see what happens but um you know we are kind of up against the ropes but we're going to fight back so um you know we won't know till next november um and i hate to say that and I hate oh that's when the voting happens well if they get their signatures if they get their signatures done yeah. and they get their spot on the ballot then we'll know you know next November. And obviously they wanted it on this next November's ballot being a presidential election year. They know everybody's going to show up. Um, so they, they were smart in what they did. You know, those people are not stupid and they've already got $20 million wrapped up into this deal. Damn. 20 million. Is that what you just said? Yeah. They have $20 million wrapped up in this ballot initiative. So um, it really feels like Colorado is just honestly trying to push out all the hunters, all the outfitters, um, kind of just, you know they just want it to be just tourist state come there to ski and hike and and all that stuff so i don't know probably if they banned it that you wouldn't be able to do this anyways but have you heard of that new um it's called like heart hunts it's hunting and release technique what people are starting to do no okay so what this is is the picture i saw they have like a pistol and your phone is hooked up to like your pistol or your rifle scope and there's an app that when you shoot the animal, like I think you shoot a blank. Oh, really? Um, you pull oh, the trigger really? or, you sh or you release your bowstring and it takes a picture of the exact moment you shoot and the app decides if that was a kill or not. Really? Yes. And I'm trying to wrap my head around how anybody would want to hike through the mountains after a mountain lion and fake kill it. But <laughs> that's, that's a thing that not they're doing. Not in the world. Yeah, no. <laughs> yes. If I'm going to bust my butt getting up a mountain and tracking a cat down, I'm not going to just like pretend that I shot it. But I don't know if that's something that they're trying to introduce as a way to maybe meet the, uh, the anti-hunters in the middle. Uh, I haven't heard of that. Um, obviously anything's possible in this state. Um, so we'll see, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, one thing I've had some buddies do it and I would not be opposed to doing this with my outfitting deal is actually just photo hunts. You know, people always want to go see a cougar in a tree. Right. And so, mm. you know, and talk about a renewable resource. I go out tree a lion, 
charge them the same as a hunt and they take all the pictures in the world and we turn around and let him go you know and then you go and catch him again next week and take his picture again you know <laughs> just use that yeah. line over and over and over again he might get pretty pissy there after about a year of doing that <laughs> yeah well and then you would still be kind of like you know on the ground right hopefully kind of monitoring cats seeing what they're up to right. and like you you know you're still boots on the ground so i guess that might be a compromise there right i don't know if i'd pay the same for that yeah but i probably would pay you for that well you and i though. wouldn't but, <laughs> but somebody maybe. might true <laughs> oh man that's that's cool though because I, I have seen so many cool pictures of people that have like you know gone with hound right. hunters or just they're going out there to to hound yes. hunt and they've taken awesome pictures yep. so that is pretty cool that that's another so yeah yep. i mean we can only exactly. hope that colorado doesn't follow in the footsteps of other states such as california or such as oregon who is currently starting to consider a ballot initiative that would ban all hunting and criminalize things such as killing animals for food hunting and fishing and even certain breeding practices of animals oregon's got some crazy stuff going on too yes they do <laughs> Oh my gosh, what is going on? Yeah, I don't even know how, like, that's that's a whole nother level where, kill, I mean, I don't know how broad even killing animals for food ranges. I don't know if they're talking about farms. It almost sounds like it is. Um, and I wouldn't put it past other states such as Colorado and California to do something like that. They're sure trying, it sounds like. They already tried that yeah. in Colorado with the agriculture. They wanted cattle to be of certain age. And okay. obviously it was an age that was not very inducive to the beef market. You know, you're taking older age class animals age before harvest, right? They wanted, oh, they like yeah. wanted steers to be five, six years old. Well, oh. <laughs> I mean, so that ain't going to work. <laughs> you know, it's just an all out war on agriculture and hunting. Now look where Colorado got their wolves. Oregon, right? Oregon, right? And where... Where did um, our head of commission come from? Oregon. He's from Oregon. There you go. And so, what a coincidence. so we have a lot of, you know, things in common there. Like influence. There's a lot of influence. There's a lot of connection. Um, you know, I think it's part of just the liberals plan. It, it's a war against hunting. It's a war against agriculture. Um, it's a war against farming as well. Um you know, I, I, and livestock growers and, and farmers, uh, it's just a shame. They don't want to actually listen to the science. It's all about passion for them. They're pa it's all about feelings. It, exactly. It's, it's the warm fuzzy. They can't, they can't stop and think, or they can't wrap their mind around us wanting to go hunt and pursue this animal. And they're wrapped up in a hundred percent about the killing. And it, it's not the killing of the animal, you know, and especially this lion hunting deal, you know, like a lot of us guys that have really, really good dogs and have hunted lions a long, long time. It's more about the chase and it's more about, I knew her last litter of kittens. I watched them grow up. I've caught her kittens, let her kittens go. I caught her last year. She started looking bad. You know, her hips were really showing um, she just looked poor. I figured the lion to probably be about 12, 13 years old. And that's pretty old for a, for a lion, you know, in the wild. And so I let a guy take her. Sure enough, that's what she is. 
She's about a 13-year-old female. Did you have her aged? Yeah, and that's mandatory in the state. They pull the premolar. Oh, didn't know that. Yeah, okay. they pull the premolar on all the lions we take, and then they do an age data. Um, but the problem with the lion data is it's not as correct as a bear. Lions do not shut down production in the wintertime. A bear hibernates, so he shows a ring in his premolar. You know, it's just like a ring in a tree. Well, lions continue mm. to produce. They continue to eat. And so it's a real, real fine line. I can tell you more about a lion's age by gum recession, incisor wear, canine wear, colors of their teeth, all that stuff. And I knew when, I knew when we killed her. I knew that that's what she would be just because of all the history I had with the girl. Um, but, you know, I had an old, old houndsman tell me one time, it takes a bigger man to walk away from a lion in a tree than it does to kill it. And, you know, us guys that have caught, caught numerous lions, and we let more lions go than we ever kill. You know, but the anti-hunters are more worried about us actually killing them. You know, it's not the pursuit of them. It's right. not the management of them. It's not actually paying for them to be on the landscape because us as hunters actually are the ones who pay to put them on the landscape. But they're so wrapped up about the actual act of us killing those animals that they can't see past that. Well, and not only that, there's such an opposition to like using hounds for hunting in general. And people don't realize that, you know, the efficiency of using hounds. So just to touch on it real quick, like when, you know, you, for example, you tree a mountain lion using hounds, you can look at that animal and you can determine it's an old animal, it's a male, it's a female, and you get a closer look at what that animal is versus if you were just hunting right. animals. Like, you know, you would hunt deer or whatever. You're seeing this animal from so far away. You're not seeing what it is. You don't know if it's a male, female. Well, you might, you know, if you're close enough and whatever. But being able to tree them, you can hunt way more efficiently and only harvest the animals that make sense conservationally. Look, though, when you talk about hound hunting and, and people say it's not traditional for one. BS, it's not traditional. Look at our forefathers. Yeah, Look at <laughs> who our, says that? That's true. <laughs> You know, and like we fight that too, like with the leopard deal, right? They say that hunting leopards with hounds is unethical, right? Um, and you need to hunt them off bait. Well, that's how Native Africans did it forever and ever is hunt them with dogs. But, you know, the hound hunting deal, you take that lion in particular, that female that we took last year, Shadow. Okay, so the first time I caught Shadow was in 2018. She came out of a piece of property. She crossed a county road, headed off into another piece of property. I turned my dogs loose and she always left a track that was an either or track. It was either a really good female or it was going to be a younger Tom. She had real round toes. And typically females have a real teardrop toe that have a point towards the front of it and really look like a teardrop. So we really didn't know. So we turned on her had her unraveled there in about a thousand yards. She's stuck in a big old aspen tree. We snow machine up there. We snow machine within 280 yards to the tree. We walk in there on snowshoes and I can see at a hundred yards that she has nipples. She had been suckling kittens and I'm like, Oh, Hey, pregnant female or, you know, female has kittens. We can't take her hundred percent. And so we take shadows picture and we leave. Well, I go back and I start backtracking her steps. She actually went and stashed these two kittens in a hay barn. And I looked in the hay barn and those two kittens were about six months old. 
and they were sitting back there in the hay bales. Well, think of that situation. Think if, let's just say, they eliminate our hounds in the state of Colorado with this vote, and they just let you spot and stalk lions. And you were to happen to be sitting there hunting deer or elk, and all of a sudden you've seen this lion. Shadow, for example. You've seen her. You had a lion tag in your pocket, and you kill her. You walk up to her, and she's got those same exposed yeah. milkers. Guess what? Yeah. Boom. Just, you just killed those right. two kittens. So the hounds yep. are, you know, allowing us to write. Take the older age class. Take the right sex. Take them at the right time. I'm not saying that every houndsman in the world uses those, all those to their best ability, right? You know, there's some guys, there's some guys that are bloodthirsty, but really as a whole, all of us are trying to take the best animal over our dogs and we're not wanting to kill females, especially females with kittens, you know, and, and it's actually proven. 70% of the females that are out there in the wild have kittens of some capacity, whether they're two-year-old kittens are still trailing around with them, or they got a brand new set of kittens stashed in a cliff somewhere, you know, so it's just best not to take them. But when they're sitting there in a tree and you can look at them and it's plain as day, I mean, it is plain as day if they have kittens. So you're allowed to let those go. Even the tom lions, I can't tell you how many two-and-a-half-year-old, three-and-a-half-year-old tom lions we've let go because they just weren't right, right? Like, a hunter wasn't going to be happy with them. They're not going to be big, nice, beautiful cats. Um, They're they're not to the age class that they need to be taken. You know, and we we turned a lot of those lions loose, but we kept a mental note where they lived. You know, and we went back the next year. We went back two years later. And we were able to take those lions. I mean, I had tom lions that I've caught two, three years in a row. And I waited for them to get five, six-year-old lions before I took them. You know, and and those lions were really kind of cool to catch because they knew the deal. Okay, all these barking dogs, they're going to take my picture and they're going to let me get on with life. You know, um, so, yeah, the hounds, the hounds afford you that. If we go to a spot and stock situation, we're going to kill adolescents. We're going to kill pregnant females. Oh, yeah. We're going to kill lactating females. Um, you know, Cubs, you, have that, you have that in Washington Kittens. State. You have that in Oregon. Um, you know, and it's really, really a shame. So, but really hound hunting with dogs is, is the traditional way to hunt. You know, another thing with this bill is you need, you need support from all hunters, all outdoorsmen. It doesn't matter if you're a bird hunter that likes going, sitting in your duck blind with your lab. You're hunting with a dog. You're next. The upland guys, you know, hunting over their pointers, whatever. Uh, The coon hunters, you know, if you like tree and coons. Like, we're all in this fight together, you know. And and let's just face it, this isn't a a real fight um, against lion hunters. This is an all-out war on guns because their whole agenda is this. And this has been proven and this has been publicly stated. All right. So let's ban the cat hunting in Colorado. Let's release the wolves. Let's uh, get them some grizzly bears. Let's get them some wolverines. Let's eat up everything that eats grass. And then they won't need to hunt. And when they don't need to hunt, 
then they don't need their guns. And that's always been us as gun owners deal is, you know, that's our right. That's our guard given right. And we as hunters want our firearms. And so it's just a war on guns at the end of the day. Right. It's all part of, you know, I'm not even being too tinfoil hatty, but it's all part of, you know, a big agenda, a big scheme to change the whole social climate of this, of our lifestyle. So it's all connected. How sick is that? Like we're not going to the city and, and forcing them to go hunting. Right. Um, we're not imposing, we're not imposing meat on a vegetarian or a meat eater, you know, lifestyle. You know, we, we're not down there throwing rocks at you guys, but they, they want to control our way of life and they want to change how we think and what we get to do, you know, or the heritage, the heritage and the tradition that I'm passing on to these kids you know, and what they're going to pass on to their kids. You know, that's the scariest thing is what am I leaving these guys? You know, what are, what can or can't they do? You know, Ridge, you know, that's that boy of mine at 13 years old, even though he's grown up with hounds, he's, he still wants to have hounds. You know, he would still like to have his own hounds, do his own lion hunts, you know, hunt with his buddies like I did, you know, in my early twenties. You know, he would still really like to do that. Is he going to get to do that in his home state? That life, yeah. Right? Is he going to get to do that? And that's that's the worst part of it, right? Like, I I almost could see myself retiring from hound hunting at the point when he could take it over and kind of go. You know, how cool would that be? Is you know, me to have trained him and turned my dogs over to him. And Ridge to come home at night and say, Dad, well, I had this situation or I had this situation. How do I unravel this? You know, and all the years of me chasing hounds be like, well, son, did you do this or did you do that? Or even just to sit back. And I do this some with him now. Like I make him, you know, go cut some tracks and I make him handle dogs a lot. But get to sit back and have a proud dad moment and just watch him go do it on his own. I don't I don't know that I'll have that. You know, I, I don't know if I'll let him get to be able to let him get to 16, cut his own lion track, turn his own dogs loose, go orchestrate a hunt all by himself. Um, you know, and that's a shame. Really, really is a shame. Really, really yeah. is a shame. Yeah, I mean, as taxidermists, conservationists, and like outdoors men and women, like that's all we want is nothing more than to keep the populations and the health of the animals, you know, at good numbers for all future generations. I agree. To enjoy. We can just kind of hope that emotions don't outweigh, you know, the, the hard facts and numbers that help right. regulate the population. Yeah, totally. Exactly what you're saying. It affects not only us right now, but affects the future. Right. Yeah, yeah. We right. want nothing more than for the animals to be healthy and happy and good to go. But uh, right. yeah, who knows what will happen. But uh, we're about to kind of wrap things up. But like, is there anything else you kind of wanted to add? Not that I can think of. You gave us a lot of good info. I hope so. So if anyone listening, if you would like to help support the fight against the banning of hunting of these wildcats and other counterintuitive measures against conservation, you can donate at savethehuntcolorado.com. And thank you, Leland, for talking with us today and giving us a great perspective on what it's like being a taxidermist, houndsman, and a hunter in Colorado right now. I appreciate it. Thanks for giving me the time and the opportunity. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you so much. We would like to thank you for listening to our new podcast, Wildverse, and we hope you enjoyed learning a little bit about Leland and his life in the changing state of Colorado. If you would like to stay up to date on new episode releases, you can follow us on Facebook at Wildverse Taxidermy Podcast and Instagram at Wildverse Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel, Wildverse Podcast, to see when new videos come out. Or you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Yes, and we hope you have a great week. And just a reminder to please support proper conservation and get out there and vote. Yes, vote.